Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are wrapping up our series in the book of Acts. Next week will be our final episode in Acts, but today we are going to be in Acts chapter 28 with Paul in Malta and Rome. As always, please do check out those show notes. We have a link there to our newly released Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter, our social media handles, as well as our YouTube channel, where we are currently running an ongoing series walking through the book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart, and we also often release videos of our psalm chants. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Trevor Lawrence, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John discussing Acts 28. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and our special guest, Trevor Lawrence, who was with us also on the last episode. Uh, Trevor is the Executive Director of the Cataclysia Institute in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, and we're glad to have him again join us for our podcasts on the Book of Acts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. I tried hard to, uh, I don't know if I tried hard, but I mentioned that uh, we are in the middle of Advent tried to bring that out at the beginning of the podcast last time and talking about Acts 27 and then forgot about it because we got so many other interesting things to talk about for that uh, chapter. But I do want to wish everyone in our listening audience a, a happy Advent, uh, a Merry Christmas, and uh, pray that the Lord's coming would fill you with joy and thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, we pray that our podcast would have some role in bringing that joy to you and uh filling you with the joy of your salvation uh, that we celebrate during this time of year. Uh, We are in the closing stages of a series of studies in the book of Acts, and we're going to be dealing with Acts 28, and particularly with Acts 28, uh, the latter part as Paul finally gets to Rome at the end of this long journey. But let me set it up with a couple of comments about how this fits into the the book of Acts as a whole and uh, how it fits into Luke's double volume, his two-volume work. It seems like something of an odd ending because Paul has been headed toward Rome, an appearance before Caesar. He appealed to Caesar several chapters back. He's been on a Roman ship because he is going toward Rome uh, and he's going to appear before Caesar. But Luke ends the story before we ever get to that trial. We've seen Paul tried by all the different courts of his of his world, but we don't see him tried before Caesar. So that we seem to, it feels like we've got uh, this momentum going in a particular direction, and then it stops before it actually reaches that. The other oddity of the ending is that we have this impetus of Paul going to Rome, which is, of course, the capital of the Gentile empire. But then when Paul gets to Rome, he's interacting primarily with the Jews at Rome. We don't hear about any Christians in Rome. Paul doesn't meet with them. At least there's no reference to that. There's no reference to Paul searching out Gentile hearers for him to preach to. Instead, he asks for a conference with Jews. He explains himself, and then they basically make plans for a larger and more complete review of the gospel and defense of the gospel. And the narrative uh, of Acts ends with that that conference with Jews. So you have this trajectory toward the, uh, and and particularly odd given the, the Jonah references that we talked about in the last episode, you have this trajectory with Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's a kind of prophetic figure that's going to the Gentiles, and then he gets to Rome and he spends time with Jews. So those are a couple of puzzles that make the the book seem open-ended. 
or not not ending the way we expected, at least. But in a lot of ways, the, the, the book is being tied up neatly. It's, it's bringing Paul's missionary journeys to an end. It's his final defense. He has several defenses of himself as a Jew before different courts, and we see his final defense. Uh, in a sense, it ends the trajectory of Acts in terms of the, the geographic trajectory that Jesus lays out at the beginning of the book, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and we're, we're at the capital of the, of the then-known world of the Oikimene when we get to the book end of the book of Acts. So it completes that arc. And then also links back to the beginning of the book of Luke. Uh, there are echoes uh, of uh, the opening chapters of Luke several times in this, in this story at the end uh, of Acts. Uh, and there are also echoes of Luke 24, where after Jesus' resurrection, he teaches the disciples on the road to Emmaus everything concerning himself and all the scriptures. He has a meal with them. He talks about the law and the prophets pointing to Jesus, and that's the content of Paul's defense before the Jews. Uh, he's trying to con- convince them concerning Jesus from the law and the prophets. So we have those echoes of Luke 24 that are going on. So in, in a lot of ways, we have this kind of closure, but we also have this kind of odd twist from what we were expecting. Let me make one other comment about uh, Acts 28 within the scope of Acts 28 itself. We talked about in the last episode, uh, Paul's arrival at Malta, and he's greeted by barbarians. The barbarians there treat him kindly. Uh, they provide shelter. They provide warmth. They provide food. They consider him a, a god. They welcome him and show hospitality as if he were a visiting deity, as if his advent is an advent of God to them, which in a sense it is. So you have that set up in Malta. But when Paul get, And when Paul gets to Rome, there seems to be something like a, a procession greeting him. The brothers come to see him. There is a reference to Christians at the beginning. His brothers come to greet him, and he comes to Rome. There's this kind of a hearty welcome and hospitality from those believers that are briefly mentioned. Uh, but then the Jews don't. You have this: uh, the Jews who should be receiving the news of their Savior and of the accomplishment of their hope with gladness. Uh, they don't receive Paul hospitably. So you have that within chapter 28, you have a particularly jarring contrast between the barbarians of Malta and the Jews uh, who refused to receive their Messiah. The community in, in Malta gather around a fire. It reminds me, it should, I think, remind us of Luke 22, when Luke tells the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. and He was gathered around the wrong fire in the high priest's house. And there he was, you know, bitten and poisoned in a sense so that he denied his Lord. And, and now we're in a in a community that's oriented around a fire, but it's again the wrong kind of fire. It's a, it's there's a serpent in it, a fiery serpent, and the fire that unites this community uh, is a satanic fire. And yet Paul is going to be able to shake it off. Oh, but just back up a minute. I mean, this is obviously symbolic of. Uh, it was true of most communities, nations, and tribes in the world at this time. Uh, their idols actually were demonically inspired, as Paul tells us back in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. It's paganism. And yet here Paul is, and he is um, he's able to bring salvation to them, healing, um, and healing to this community. And as you mentioned, Peter, this he's quite effective here in Malta. And yet when he gets to Rome, he's met by another community, which 
uh, and they have their own kind of satanic inspiration, the, the apostate Jews, which causes Paul to turn away uh, to the, do uh, Gentile ministry exclusively. The incident with the serpent also seems to pick up on certain statements of Christ within the gospel, where he um, says in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And also in the longer ending of Mark's gospel, um, there's the statement about picking up serpents with their hands, um, mm. which as signs that follow the true messengers are appropriate in the case of Paul. This is another validation of his identity and the identity of Christ's messengers at the very end of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I think perhaps also here um, we should think about these as confirmatory signs for a missionary journey. Um, Every single one of Paul's missionary journeys has particular healings or signs that are part of it. And these would be the ones associated with the journey towards Rome, a sort of divine seal of approval upon um, what's taking place. One of the things that's going on there at the beginning of the chapter also is the continuation of the uh, Christological dimensions, uh, the Christological illusions that we talked about before. The uh, shipwreck and rescue is a kind of death and resurrection, a baptismal experience for Paul. This time on Malta has a number of links. He's bitten. The um, people of Malta think that he might die from the, from the snake bite. He shakes off the snake. The satanic uh, viper falls into the fire. And instead of being said of dying, he's uh, is considered a god. And then he spends three days in the house of Publius and heals Publius's father. So we have this extension. Uh, we have this sequence of Paul bitten by a deadly viper. He's saved from that deadly viper. He's acknowledged as a kind of god. Uh, and then... Uh, he carries on a healing ministry um, following this kind of resurrection. One of the things that's uh, curious, a, a lot of commentators point to is the fact that the uh, people of Malta treat him as a God and uh, Paul, neither Paul nor Luke uh, does anything, says anything to counter that claim, to counter that, that conclusion. Uh, earlier when, when, uh, when Paul and Barnabas are considered God, Paul's God's, Paul makes uh, makes a point of denying that, but here there's no there's no denial from Paul, uh, and no no correction from the narrator narrator either. So we we're left with this impression that there's something right about their conclusion that he's uh, he's a a divine messenger, a kind of lowercase g god. You mentioned the Christological associations there, and that's perfectly consistent with what happens at Jesus' resurrection. He comes through death unscathed uh, and is shown to be the son of God in power. And so in Luke's uh, narrative in Acts 28, uh, Paul is bitten, should have died, comes through unharmed uh, and is associated with deity. Uh, I think there's there's very much that Christological connection uh, in the, the vindication uh, realm as well. We mentioned in our discussion of Acts 27, fairly thick Passover and Exodus motifs. That continues in chapter 28 uh, with wilderness motifs following their Gentile Exodus. Uh, But whereas Israel in the wilderness uh, 
went to war against nations on their way toward the land. Here, Gentiles are not receiving judgment. They are not the objects of military aggression. Uh, They instead receive a conquest of mercy, prayer, and healing. There's an, an interesting reversal of expectation. When we look at the way the Gentiles receive God's prophet, Paul, here, we also see that they are Uh, receiving Paul better than Israel received Moses with all of their grumbling in the wilderness. And so the contrast that you mentioned uh, in Acts 28 begins at the beginning again Mm -hmm. uh, with a a defied expectation with the treatment of the Gentiles, but also Gentiles playing Israel's part better than she did herself. Mm -hmm. One of the the things that reinforces the... uh the parallels between Paul and, and Jesus here is the, the insistence, the insistent references to periods of three, uh, temporal periods of three. Verse seven talks about three days in the house of Publius. Uh, they are uh, three months before they set sail on an Alexandrian ship and head on to Rome. They get to Syracuse, verse 12 says, and they stay there for three days. Uh, so there's this, um, it was verse 17 again, it happened after three days. He finally gets to Rome, and then three days later, he's calling a, a conference with the leading Jews. Uh, that uh, There's this repeated allusion back to the three days of Jesus, between Jesus' death and resurrection. Surely also this is designed to give the Christian church some confidence in dealing with um, paganism. Not only is the church immune from the poison of paganism, if she's living right, as Paul is, but can become an agent of health and healing and and peace, shalom in the community. So um, this is what Paul does. Now, everybody asks us questions if if these Malta uh, citizens or uh, people are converted. There's no explicit reference to conversions here, but you, you almost have to read the story as exactly that. These people are converted and therefore honored Paul and his companions in so the, what's happening here is Paul is showing how the giving and receiving of acts of kindness builds bridges for the gospel. So Paul heals the head of this community, and then the healing spreads to the rest of the household, just as the work of Christians for their neighbors gives them respect and honor. And then other people see that good works, and they glorify the fathers in heaven. Uh, so um, I think this is just a an excellent, you know, morale boosting kind of story for Christians in the Roman world about what can happen if they just do these simple acts of kindness. So their conduct will be honorable among the Gentiles and they won't speak against you as evildoers, but they'll glorify God. One of the tests we see in the Gospels on a number of occasions is Jesus sends out his disciples and depending on how they're received, the people are either established for judgment or um, set up for blessing. And here we have a great welcome given by the barbarians, um, which isn't necessarily a derogatory term um, as Luke uses it. It's more about the language that they're speaking. Um, But it's a very positive presentation of them, Um, a great hospitality that they're showing to people who don't have any money or resources, presumably to pay them. They've lost things in the shipwreck. And yet, they are shown this great kindness. And within that, Luke doesn't underline it, but there's very clearly 
table fellowship and other things going on between Jews and Gentiles here, which has been an issue throughout the book. And here at this climactic point, it's not just the Romans, it's the barbarians that are receiving the church in a way that the Jews have failed to do. Yeah, not only failed to do, we got to remember that they they were pursuing Paul from city to city. They were um, instigating riots and violence against Paul. They were stoning him, and they were finally, in the end, uh, trying to assassinate him. Um, so, uh, and and hurling all kinds of unjust accusations against him. It's a really stark contrast. Mm. One of the details uh, of the that uh, stands out in the description of the ongoing voyage. They're on Malta for three months, and then they set sail. In verse eleven, it says, an, "On an Alexandrian ship." Um, Coming out of uh, coming out of Egypt, but this ship has uh, a uh, figurehead of the the twin brothers or the the twins Castor and Pollux, sons of Zeus. Why, why is that there? Some have said they were patrons of navigators, um, but they're also regarded as punishers of perjurers and guardians of truth. Um, so as Paul goes on the ship, it's a continuation of the theme of vindication. One of the things I wonder about is whether Luke does anything with these little Zodiac um, themes that he throws in at various points. Mm -hmm. So he's got a virgin, he's got two fish, he's got a man carrying a water pitcher, he's got the twins here. Is there anything Mm -hmm. more to this? Um, Is this just accidental? You're you're reaching back into the gospel to get uh, a couple of those connections. Yes, and some have argued in... Chapter two, the list of the nations follows the zodiacal order um, that's ah. given. Interesting. Yeah, it, that that would be a that would definitely be a fun project to see if he's uh, if he's giving us a full zodiac through Luke and Acts. Uh, the uh, you know the, the 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 stars that make up the Abrahamic people or something of that of that sort, uh, a heavenly people that's being brought into the kingdom. I have no idea if there's anything to this. But you mentioned that Castor and Pollux are sons of the god Zeus. Uh, If we, again, uh, take 27 and 28, uh, the last chapters of Acts, as at least having a dynamic of a Passover, Exodus, wilderness, and then entrance into the land motif, uh, it's interesting that Paul uh, comes as the son of God, uh, small s, uh, having been delivered through the Exodus like Israel uh, into the land of Rome uh, to fulfill his vocation on a ship that is marked with the sons of the Roman God. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think the 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 fact that the uh, Castor and Pollux are specifically uh, guardians of the of of, of the sea that you know, they rescue people from the sea. I mean, Paul has kind of played that role in the previous chapter, so that might reinforce your uh, suggestion, Trevor, that uh, he's he's being presented as a as a son of God, identified as a god by the people of Malta, but also within Luke's story is being identified as a as a, a son of the high God. I, w- I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, what what I began with that uh, you have this uh, narrative pressure that seems to be moving toward an appearance before Caesar, which you don't see. Why, why does Luke not show us that? And then also there seems to be this pressure and this movement toward the Gentiles. 
He's going to the capital of the Gentile world after all, but he spends his whole time with Jews is in what's recorded at least. So how, how do you think about those, uh, the apparent discrepancy between those, the trajectory of the story and how it actually concludes? Perhaps Luke in some ways wrong foots us here in a way that alerts us to the key message. The primary point is not the outcome of Paul's story. It's the fact that the gospel is boldly preached. It's the message of the kingdom. Um, it's interesting, the language of the kingdom of God is not that common within the book of Acts. It's found at the very beginning as Jesus teaches his disciples in the 40 days. And it's also found here at the end. Um, it's a bringing full circle of the question that you have at the beginning, will the kingdom be restored at this time to Israel with this rejection that's seen as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah? And I think for Paul's story, um, Paul is not actually the central actor. It's the word of God. And the word of God has reached Rome. The word of God has arrived at its destination. Paul still has some way to go. His story is not ended here, but he's the bearer of the real um, central actor within the story, which is the word. I think there's also a significant play on the motif of conquest. After the wilderness experience of Malta, uh, Paul crosses water once again to enter the land, not Canaan, but Rome. And whereas in Canaan, uh, God gave the land of the Canaanites to Israel and they were to drive out the nations. Uh, here in Rome, Paul focuses on the children of Israel and he announces a word of judgment over them. The kingdom of Israel's Messiah is going to be granted to the Gentiles and Israel is now judged as the, the Gentile peoples are welcomed into salvation. Uh, so I, I think there's a a, a reversal uh, of expectation in this conquest motif that, again, typologically and figurally makes uh, a point that's key to what uh, Luke and Paul are saying to us at the end of chapter 28. Yeah, it, it's necessary at this point, at the end of the book, because as Alistair pointed out at, at the beginning of the book, the disciples were asking Jesus if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time. And, G and Jesus gives them this uh, kind of sideways answer, uh, ambiguous kind of answer, is not for you to know. And apparently what that means is not for that, there was no way for them to have been able to receive the, the real answer to that question until they went through this period and recognized that it was going to be necessary that Israel uh, is uh, sidelined. And here at the end of the book, Israel is uh, rejected and Paul turns to the Gentiles. Nobody, not one of the disciples would have ever been able to hear that at the beginning of the story. But at the end, after we go through, after we've gone through everything, uh, now we understand why that was necessary. Also, if we jump back to chapter one, in one sense, uh, the kingdom is not coming in the way that the disciples likely anticipate. Yeah. In another sense, uh, everything that the restoration of Israel's kingdom involved takes place in the book of Acts. So if you look specifically at Ezekiel 37, there you have 
a, a reunion of the scattered uh, peoples of Israel under a singular Davidic king where God promises that he will make his dwelling once again with his people. At Pentecost, we have uh, the reunion of scattered Jews from all across the earth, from every nation under heaven, under the lordship of the risen Davidic son and filled with the Holy Spirit as the dwelling place of God. Even the northern tribes are included in this restoration of Israel under Jesus by the power of the gospel as the movement of the gospel in the book of Acts journeys toward Samaria. And that is consistent with what Paul is here declaring to the Jews. He is proclaiming the hope of Israel. It's not an arbitrary hope. It's not a a changed hope. It's not uh, hope plan B. Uh, From the beginning of Luke's gospel, it has been the hope, and in Simeon's words, the the consolation of Israel that uh, Jesus has come to offer and that Paul and the church are continuing. Uh, So this is consistent with themes found throughout the book of Acts, but also linking back to the very uh, testimonies about who Jesus is and what he's come to do in the first chapters of Luke's gospel. We really have come full circle, not with Acts itself, but with the two volumes that Luke has written. Luke explores the motifs of blindness and deafness at a number of points within his gospel and within Acts. Elemis the sorcerer, obviously Paul himself, who struck blind. And then going back to the very beginning of the book of Luke, to the character of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who is struck deaf and dumb. Um, And here, those themes are brought together within this quote from Isaiah, a quote that replaces what were previously um, imperatives, um, make the heart of this people dull, with finite verbs, for this people's heart has grown dull. Um, And This is also picking up some language that Jesus used in the context of his parables, that this was part of the purpose of the parables. So this is, in many ways, a thematic text for understanding not just the book of Acts, but the book of Luke and Acts as two twin volumes. And then going back to the beginning, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the description of Christ as he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. As I noted earlier, the expression, the kingdom of God is pervasive throughout the gospel, but it's not found that often within the book of Acts. It's found a couple of times in this final chapter and three other occasions apart from in chapter one. And here you have Paul described at the very end, living there two whole years at his own expense, welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it seems that, again, this is a parallel between Paul and his master um, as Christ. And beyond that, something about Paul, Peter and Christ, they disappear from the scene to some extent. They don't have some um, dramatic event and send-off. I mean, you have the ascension, but you have people looking up into the heavens, wondering what's going on, and then wandering back into town. Um, With Peter, he appears, and then after chapter 12, he largely disappears after his release from prison. And here, Paul has a similar sort of um, leaving of the stage. It's not 
primarily um, the story of Paul. It's a story of the continuing mission of Christ, and all these characters are steps along the way. Alistair, you mentioned the uh, links with between Paul and Jesus here at the end of Acts. One of those is the uh, the reference to the kingdom of God, but also the way that he tries to persuade this delegation of Jewish leaders. Uh, in verse 23, he tries to persuade them concerning Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. goes back to Luke 24. The, we've noticed this throughout the book of Acts, that the apostolic preaching is formed by what Jesus taught them after his resurrection. He, everything concerning himself in, in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The question I want to raise there is, Paul is teaching like Jesus. He's teaching according to the model of Jesus. Paul is no doubt very persuasive. Uh, and he spends one day from morning until evening. And after apparently one day, some were persuaded, others not. And then Paul addresses them with the parting word from Isaiah. Uh, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly to your fathers and and then uh, gives that quotation that we've been discussing. That seems an abrupt conclusion. You know, if I spent a, a day trying to persuade somebody of something, and they weren't persuaded at the end of the day. I would think, well, I I didn't I didn't do the best job of persuading, or they need more time, or I'll come back and try again. Why is this a decisive event? Or or to ask a different question, or get at the same question, same thing from a different angle? What is Paul expecting to happen? What is what does not happen that he expects or wants to happen? Robert Tannehill raises the interesting possibility that we should read this as somewhere in the process of being persuaded um, rather than they were actually convinced. And at that point, they break off lest they be, or the group breaks away lest some of their number be persuaded, much as you have Agrippa sort of backing away um, earlier on. And so there's a rejection, feeling the, for the persuasive force of the gospel. There's this turning back. Um, of the group. This this isn't just a synagogue presentation as as Paul usually does. Uh, he's not talking to you know a gathered congregation. He's talking to the leaders in verse seventeen, and so um, maybe that also should color the way we think about this. The leaders are in disagreement and walk away, and then Paul. Um, Paul makes this statement. Yeah. In response to uh, Alistair's point, uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a possibility, I suppose, of uh, they're be beginning to be persuaded about things spoken, but there's still a division. Uh, they don't agree with one another. Verse 25, after he's spoken those words, they're having a great dispute, presumably a dispute over Paul, which means seems to mean that some are inclined and some not. Uh, and Yet that's not, in other cases, when that happens, Paul just takes those who respond favorably and uh, they form a church. Uh, but here it's, he's looking for something else. I think I, I just point about the, the different audience is a, is a significant one, that he's talking to the leaders of, the, of Roman Judaism. So they have a kind of weight that a, leaders of, a, a, of an individual synagogue would not have. Well, I'm sure also verse 30 makes it clear that Paul is going to welcome all who came to him. Maybe some of these leaders eventually come to him, um, but he's he's cutting off any kind of 
Jew first ministry that he's had in the past. Um, he's, it's, it's in effect saying, I don't need to go into the synagogue first if you leaders are in this, are going to treat me this way. But anyone who wants to come to me, um, I'll receive them. And the narrative uh, throughout Acts has introduced violent, at times, Jewish antagonism to Paul and his message uh, for many, many chapters. Uh, And so by the time we get to Acts 28, we have reached the ends of the earth, uh, which is the the center of of the known world in Rome. Uh, And when the reaction is more ambivalence and disbelief and departing from Paul, uh, it seems like even within the course of the narrative, we've been set up to expect that this is this is a climactic moment. Uh, as Jeff was saying, are, are the leaders going to go uh, the direction that we have seen many Jews go throughout the course of Paul's ministry? Uh, and when he when the hope of Israel is not received uh, from, as we saw in Acts 27, uh, Paul, who embodies the the prophetic ministry of Israel, um, we have a, a, a culminating rejection that elicits this word of judgment from Paul. Uh, very good points. Uh, another question I wanted to raise about the Isaiah passage, Gregory Beale in his book on your, what you worship talks about sensory deprivation uh, as a result of idolatry in, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in other prophetic books. The reason why, People have eyes but can't see, have ears but can't hear, is because they worship idols who have eyes and can't see and ears that can't hear, and they become like what they worship. So uh, the quotation here, if you if you bring that that theology into this, the quotation from Isaiah seems to imply that the Jews have been deprived by their idolatry. And is do you think that um, does that follow? Is there is there preparation for that within Acts to to Think of Jews not just as resistant to the news, but actually as being idolatrous. What what occurs to me is is uh, Stephen's speech in Acts seven, um, where he basically says that the Jew the, the temple of the Jews has become an idolatrous place. Remember, um, so maybe this is part of that. Well, and and. Paul's speech to the leaders here is 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 a lot like Stephen's speech in Acts seven. Mm. Yeah, so there's maybe an implied trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord that uh, reaches back to to Acts seven. Has that come up otherwise within Acts that the the Jews are attached to the temple or to some other potential idol? Christ, Stephen, and Paul. Um, that is the key charge that's brought against them, their opposition to the temple. Yeah, right. Good point. And that would be consistent with the framing of the temple in Luke, particularly when when Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, this is an act of judgment, which uh, in Old Testament precedent was associated with idolatry, uh, polluting the house of God. How, how do you think of the... Uh concluding statement of Acts in the light of uh, Romans 9 through 11, uh, with the gospel being sent to the Gentiles as actually part of the mechanism for the salvation of Israel. That was in my mind as a lens for reading even Luke's 
narrative purpose with so many of these Israel-Gentile contrasts that there's a a rhetorical attempt to elicit jealousy Mm -hmm. that the blessings of Israel are being received by Gentiles and Israel herself is occupying the the role of the judged nations uh, in the story that Luke is telling. There there seems to be uh, a a very sophisticated narrative strategy of of contrasting the two groups that ought to elicit Israelites mm-hmm. saying, "Wait, we aren't embracing the culmination of our own story. We aren't receiving the climax of our own hope." Uh, and in that sense, uh, the end of, of Acts very well could be intended to elicit just that response that Paul yeah. talks about. Yeah, that's a good point. I've been thinking, and in, in, as I've prepared for this, I was thinking about the the, the gospel is an announcement, as, as Paul keeps saying, the gospel is an announcement of the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. To use N.T. Rice terminology, it's the victory of God. That's what Evangelium means, the announcement of victory. And this announcement is going out to the Jews. It's like it's like a it's like a people who get uh, news that they've won a war. Finally, after millennia of warfare, and not accepting the news that the war's over and that they that they're victorious, or you know the the uh, the victorious team who refuses to accept the judgment that they they won the the won the contest. I mean, feel that that's the. I guess the trying to get the emotion of what degree of disappointment or frustration or dismay must greet somebody like Paul, who knows that he's bringing this news of of uh, final satisfaction. This is what Israel has been hoping for forever, uh, and yet they won't receive it. Um, who would not receive that news that you that you've won and that your God is one? It really is a, a matter of unresponsive hearts. They they. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't receive, because otherwise the the news would be too, you know, just uh, it's it's what they wanted since they began, since the since the people began. I I can't imagine us being able to logically penetrate that question. It's part of the mystery of uh, of sin, and indeed, isn't that the way Paul ends in his uh, his discussion of this in Romans nine through eleven with uh, it's it's. It's in God's hands, and uh, I don't know how else to explain it. He says, you know, it's uh, it's a mystery. Mm. Several scholars connect verse 28, uh, where Paul announces that the salvation of God is being sent to Gentiles who will listen, uh, to texts like Psalm 67, Psalm 98, and Isaiah 40, where Gentiles will see and know uh, the the glory of God and the salvation that he offers. What's interesting is that in all of those texts, the eliciting factor for the Gentiles' knowledge of God is the restoration and salvation of Israel. In the Old Testament expectation, it's Israel's salvation under God that demonstrates with irrepressible proof to Gentile nations that the Lord is king, and that his glory is the glory that must be entered to find life. As we said before, Acts has been narrating the restoration of Israel. So by the time we get to the second to last verse of Acts, it is indeed the salvation of Israel under King Jesus 
that is eliciting the listening ears of the nations of the earth. And yet, I think you're right, that we are supposed to feel the irony. We're supposed to feel that narrative tension, that pressure, that the restoration of Israel has left a lot of hard-hearted Israel behind. Well, Luke, earlier on, particularly in the Sermon of Stephen, foregrounds the theme of double visitation. And it's probably worth bearing in mind that the Jews here had presumably heard the gospel before. If we take Suetonius's account of Claudius's expulsion of the Jews and see Crestus there as the figure of Christ about which there was dispute within the Jewish community, then Christ's message had already been a cause of great dissension in their community. Then there's an established church within the city. Paul's message here is not, this is not the first time they've heard this. This is something that they've rejected presumably a number of times already or resisted and even violently opposed. Yeah, and they say that. They say that they don't know anything about, uh, they haven't heard any reports about uh, bad things about Paul, but uh, they do know about this sect. This is verse 22. It's known to us that it's spoken against everywhere. Uh, so that, yeah, that does, uh, that that would be an, another part of the answer to my question that although Paul has one shot at them. It's not like it's the first shot that they have at hearing the gospel. They've already they've already rejected it. But I'm I'm glad, Alistair, that you uh, that you brought us back to the double visitation theme, which we've talked about uh, in the past in our studies in Acts. Uh, Jesus comes and visits his people. Then he sends his spirit. Uh, the spirit comes and visits, and then the spirit filled apostles come and visit. Uh, Stephen's another visitation. Peter's another visitation. Paul's a visitation of Christ. I'm delighted with that because that brings us back to Advent. So we can we can end on end where we began with Advent greetings to all our listeners, uh, looking back with joy at the coming of Jesus, looking ahead to his coming to us in at the Lord's table, his coming to us in salvation and life, his coming to us at the last day. Uh, and uh, Acts ends with that, uh, on that note of the double visitation, the apostles of Jesus bearing Jesus before the nations. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.